Psychology Nerds. Welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. We've got a really important episode today with one of your favorite regular guests, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But first, I want to tell you all about the UW Green Bay Psychology Week coming up the week of March 25th to the 29th. There's going to be original in person and online content all week long. We'll have four brand new episodes of the podcast that week, new video content, the Sci Talks, a volunteer night, an open house, and much, much more. You can learn all about it at the Psych Week website at www.uwgb.edu slash psychweek. And with that, let's get to today's episode. So today, we're going to talk about healthy sleep, how to get it, and what happens when you don't get enough. And to do that, we are bringing into that conversation a regular. That's right. It's my brain guy. He runs the Cogneural Lab here at UW-Green Bay. It's Dr. Jason Cowell. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. I'm excited to talk about sleep, something that I think a lot of us struggle with. Right, right. So I was, earlier today, as I was preparing for this, I scrolled through the news, and every headline, it feels like, has something to do with sleep these days. Like, I'm literally looking at things about sleep disorders and chronic pain, how sleep can boost your immunes, uh, your body's immune response. Sleep modulates a word that I don't know. Oh, what is that word, Jason? <laughs> you don't know either? Yes, oh. I stumped him. Yes, awesome. well done, well done. So um, it can protect against something. Uh, <laughs> poor sleep could clog your arteries, the best gravity-weighted blankets based on your sleeping styles. It would seem that a lot of people out there care about sleep. Is that a fair assessment? That's a completely fair assessment. I mean, it's something that, yeah, I too looked earlier today, just did a simple search for sleep on, on the Google, and lo and behold, Everything comes up. It's an industry where people have spent thousands and thousands of R&D, well, actually millions of R&D dollars trying to figure out how can we get people to sleep better? How can we get people to sleep longer? How can you have more efficient sleep? Uh, How do we get into REM cycles, which we're going to talk a lot about that stuff today. But it's this fascinating industry that seems to make the news quite constantly. Like, how can we sleep better? Well, I've actually heard... Interestingly, that this year they're really anticipating sleep aids kind of blowing up the same way energy drinks have blown up in the past. That like this is a thing that they're expecting to to we'll see a lot more of. And and part of that is if you look at if you look at the news on sleep and any kind of sleep study that comes out, one of the ways is how is that spun? So how do you see these news articles coming out? And half of them are okay. We found this thing where if you sleep deprive people for uh, you know, three or four days, what are the effects on cognition? And then the media story goes, if you don't sleep for two to three days, you have the equivalent of, uh, you know, a 0.1 alcohol level or something like that in your blood for your cognitive abilities. And it's these fascinating kind of scary stories that I think resonate with all of us where we're going, wow, my cognitive abilities are really impaired or my emotional abilities are really impaired just by not sleeping. So I think that's part of why it's a, it's an appealing content. Yeah. So, and I have, I have big questions that maybe aren't the... Maybe this isn't necessarily the form, but why Americans are feeling so sleep deprived. And I think right now, like I'm, I have a lot of questions about about worry and about a host of other yeah. things that are yeah. driving this that we as a society are encouraging. But um, what I'm more interested in right now is sort of like 
teach me about sleep. Why is it so important? What happens when we sleep that, uh, that, that, and why, why is it associated with all these negative outcomes when we don't do it? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll get into some of the basics here. Um, you had a, you had a guest actually, who was a specialist in, uh, circadian rhythms and timing yes, last year, I believe Lorenzo was on, right? Yeah. Um, last semester. Uh, last semester. There we go. And, uh, so he talked a lot more about circadian rhythms and how cells themselves have, uh, rhythms to them, timing based rhythms. And where all this circadian, so circa means almost or about, and then dn a day, so about a day is the um, rhythm that your body goes off of. It's around a 24-hour rhythm, but and that has a sleep and wakefulness cycle, meaning there are certain hormones that are secreted at certain times of the day uh, to get you ready to confront the rest of the day, to get you starting to calm down towards the end of the day. And these kinds of cycles correspond to... Uh, light-based inputs that come in. So they're usually reset by things called zeitgebers, which is which can be the light outside, but it can also be, you know, the screen on your cell phone. It can be even a Kindle, which has a little bit of backlighting to it oftentimes. That can be enough to actually do a reset to uh, parts of your circadian cycle, which is part of why I think we confront this problem a lot is that uh, we're not used to being away from sources of light for an extended period of time, and that's one of the keys to this cycle happening. Um, we know that if you pull certain cells out of a place called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is a small uh, set of neurons that are sitting in the hypothalamus, those are the ones that are almost completely responsible for your sleep and wakefulness cycles. The, the SCN, or suprachiasmatic nucleus, receives input from your eyes. There's a, a direct pathway that is sending input. It's not sending the visual input. It's just registering light or not light outside. And that helps to reset your cycle to be right around 24 hours. If you have situations where you do shift work, your cycle can actually shift. So your 24-hour cycle is not ingrained so much that it will always be the case. If you're having weird shifts or also jet lag is another instance of this where you can mess with that circadian cycle because you're used to having light cues at certain times of the day and dark cues at other times of the day. And that usually lines up with uh, what's going on uh, from a circadian cycle side. So that's the first step of sleep. First step of sleep is, do you have a 24-hour sleep and wakefulness cycle? If you start to alter that, you start to get a lot of sleep disturbances. So if you do shift work, that's one of the, or shift work or uh, medical residents are another case where this is well known, and you start to disrupt that normative sleep-wake cycle, you start to actually have really impaired aspects to cognition. What should sleep look like? Um, the reason that you constantly hear six to eight hours is that it takes about eight hours for you to have enough cyclings into what's called rapid eye movement sleep that you can have the restorative effects of sleep. And so in the average adult, it takes around eight hours for you to have enough of the cycles into REM sleep. Um, I can go further into what that actually means. Then. Yes. Yeah, yeah, let's hear about it. So, all right. So I'm starting to fall asleep. I'm sitting here. I'm getting tired. What happens? There are sleep stages that progress. The way that sleep stages are usually uh, laid out is based off EEG. So EEG is a, is a type of technology that we actually use in the lab here on campus, uh, electroencephalography. But it's measuring electrical signals happening in the brain. 
And these fall along certain uh, lines, as in they fall along certain patterns. In our in everyday life, as we're doing different things, our brain is operating in certain uh, density frequent or in certain frequency bins, meaning uh, between eight and thirteen hertz. So eight to thirteen times of that wave um, hitting every second. That's the kind of frequency where we have this alpha type wave happening, and alpha gets. Uh, heavier, at, there's more alpha as we start to get more bored, more tired. Um, we have things called beta waves. Beta waves are the things that are stronger. There's more of them usually as we are engaging in cognitive thought or right now trying to pay attention or our everyday lives. All of these exist to a little bit of an extent with the exception of delta, which rarely exists in waking life. Um, but all these exist in a regular EEG. The biggest difference as we start to fall asleep is we go from a kind of asynchronous EEG, meaning all of these waves are forming a really complex waveform that we can get to it starts to look very cyclical. It starts to have a pattern to it. And those patterns then are what, if you've ever taken an intro psych course or an AP psych course and you've heard about stages of sleep, that's really where these patterns come from. So the patterns are you start off um, in non-rapid eye movement sleep and you go stage one, two, three, four, and then you go four, three, two, and then you usually skip into REM sleep. And you keep cycling through this, uh, this set of stages uh, throughout the night. The difference that happens across the course of the night is the first four to five hours of sleep rarely hit REM sleep. So you get into REM sleep, but you only spend several minutes in REM sleep each time. Throughout the course of the night, you progress through the other levels faster, and then you spend a more concentrated time in rapid eye movement sleep. And rapid eye movement sleep is what we think is actually the most important piece of the restorative effects of sleep. So between hours five and eight usually of sleeping is where you're spending more of your time in rapid eye movement sleep. So if you're sleeping less than five hours, oftentimes what happens is you're not getting enough of the, of the REM sleep uh, to happen. So rapid eye movement sleep as compared to regular uh, REM sleep is oftentimes where you're having uh, your deep dreams. It's also where uh, there are pseudo anxiolytic or um, a paralyzing effects that happen to your body. So you have certain things are secreted in order to keep the rest of your body relatively still so that you're not having massive muscle movements in the middle of sleep. So when you enter a REM cycle, you actually have the secretion of this to stop activity from happening in major muscle groups. And so it creates a pseudo paralytic effect to most of your body. Uh, that's natural in REM sleep. That's what's supposed to happen so that you're not randomly walking off in the middle of having a dream. Um, a lot of sleepwalking and things like that are actually occurring pre-REM sleep or in the cycling uh, within the stages themselves. So I have a question about that because I've, I've talked to people who've said that when they were sleepwalking or sleeping around that they thought they were acting out their dream. Is that not the case or? There's some argument that that might be. There's okay. some argument that it's not. So it's okay. hard to measure. If you think about sleep, the issue with studying sleep in the lab and why I can't give you a great answer on this is that um, the sleep that you have in a sleep lab is oftentimes uh, you've got an entire EEG mm -hmm. on your head. They're trying to get you to go to sleep. You've got 15 people watching you, and it's a really weird experience. That's just like I do it at That home, is actually. exactly yeah. how all of us sleep people, at home. I have like 15 to 16 people sometimes watching. You've got a busy household. Okay. <laughs> this is, uh, but the, the weird thing is 
I don't actually know the answer to that question because it's hard to replicate those kinds of anomalies in a sleep lab. So we can't say exactly what's happening in the brain, can't say exactly what stage you're in. So there is such thing as dreaming that's not REM cycle dreaming, that's Uh, non-REM sleeping. Um, And and that happens as well. And there's some argument that that's part of where sleepwalking is acting out dreams or things like that. And I think we'll probably get more into dreaming from you talking about it later, but, um, or maybe not, but, uh, there's a lot of arguments about what, what dreams are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do know though, is that sleep has some major consequences in a good way for the individual. Uh, there are a lot of theories about what those are, but. So how do I know if I'm getting enough sleep? Because I, I mean, I, I've hear this like six to eight hours is a range, like, how do you know if you're getting enough? How do you, is it based on how you feel when you wake up? Or? Yeah, so this is, again, one of the, the hard things is that most of us feel as though we are groggier than we necessarily are. So if you self-report sleepiness, mm-hmm. most of us report high levels of sleepiness uh, throughout the day and think we're all sleep deprived. It's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that's well known is that in young adults, it's a lot more prevalent. So for instance, uh, there was one study a couple of years ago that if you had a, uh, an hour or, t- or it was between an hour and an hour and a half less sleep per night, it reduced your attentional abilities for the day by about a third. So about a 33% reduction. And that was in teenagers, which is a really scary piece to think about for high school. We also know that not having your rhythms, your daily rhythms in line with the kinds of work you have to do has huge effects as well. So there's been an entire literature that's not asking how much did you sleep, but how well are your arousal cycles in line with what you're asking to do. And this comes into play in, uh, in adolescence because right around age 11 to 12, you usually have a shift where your peak arousal is happening later on in the day and your peak fatigue is happening early in the morning. And so the exact time that we're asking students to go into school and to start to pay attention and whatnot is actually where neurochemically they have the least ability to do so. And so it's called a circadian synchrony kind of argument, but this is where um, throughout adolescence and into early adulthood, one of the arguments is um, that melatonin release that happens to help uh, induce fatigue and to help scaffold better sleep later in the evening. That's actually sometimes happening in the morning. It's, sometimes it's just not as efficiently produced. Uh, and, and what you're seeing is students that if they're asked to take an IQ test, if they're asked to take executive function or self-control-based tests in the morning when they're actually having peak arousal in the afternoon, they're scoring a standard deviation or more below uh, what they should. And so it's huge effects. Uh, just by being tested at the wrong time of the day. This shifts back in uh, usually mid-20s is when you shift back to being a morning type again and having peak arousal <clears throat> mid-morning uh, in most biological males. That also then means peak testosterone levels are mid-morning. And so yeah. other types of neurochemicals and hormones that are going to peak end up happening on that on a morningness cycle instead of an eveningness hmm. cycle. Uh, so it's... Loosely uh, related, but have you read the book When by Daniel Pink? I haven't actually. It's um, it's pretty good. I'm I'm halfway through it right now. But he um, it's not entirely about sleep, but he so it's called When: The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing uh, by Daniel H. Pink. Um, it's pretty interesting because he he actually covers a lot of what you just talked about. So it's not all related to sleep, but he talks about the the actually the research you just 
mentioned about testing and things like that and about how just changing schedules can lead to increases in, in that. Yeah. And that's, that's the tricky part about sleep, which is uh, we think of sleep as the time that I am laying down, closing my eyes and restoring whatever it is that I'm mm-hmm. restoring during sleep. But in reality, it's sleep that's then influencing and the lack of sleep that's influencing our arousal cycle throughout the entire day. That's then influencing our next sleep. And so it's this constant cycle going back and forth, which is why it's hard to tease apart circadian rhythms from sleep mm-hmm. as, as a whole. Right. Um, so w- w- you mentioned the, like, whatever it is that it, we're restoring, what are we restoring? What's yes. Yeah, so there are kind of, there, there are four major theories that have been out there about what it is that sleep's doing. Some of them have really good evidence right now. So the, the one that I constantly talk about in class and the importance of sleep has to do with memory consolidation. Uh, One of the processes we know that's happening during sleep is that uh, for some period of time after you've learned a new task or uh, had some kind of experience, that uh, encoded aspects of that are being stored by the hippocampus. So one of the areas uh, subcortically in the brain that's responsible for parts of memory. And then they're offloaded to other parts of the cortex. But that offloading process is thought to usually happen during, uh, it definitely happens during rapid eye movement sleep. And some have argued it might happen uh, during non-rapid eye movement sleep as well. So if you interfere with sleep cycles, you actually interfere with the consolidation of long-term memories and thus the retrieval of them, meaning you can't remember things as well. So if you're pulling all-nighters before exams, it turns out you're actually defeating the entire purpose of what's going on because you're trying to remember these things for for some period of time. So pulling constant all-nighters ends up yielding less retention over time because you're not consolidating things to long-term memory. Uh, There are more evolutionary arguments that have less to do with memory consolidation and have more to do with um, one which is having to do with scarcity of resources and cons- and making sure that uh, you're not hungry at all times. So we use less metabolically when we sleep, and so it's thought to be slightly protective in that uh, we go into a pseudo-hibernation kind of aspect uh, during sleep. So we're using less resources, which means it's less trying for the individual. And some of the evidence, uh, that's always a, a different kind of evidence because it's evolutionary. So some, if you look at species, for instance, there's some work in the 1970s that looked at um, cross species and looked at the safety and security that species have. And it turns out the less security, physical security a species has, uh, the more out in the open they sleep, et cetera, the less time overall they sleep. And so it seems to be highly related to how secure you feel. Hmm. Um, Some of the other arguments have to do with uh, sleep as well so we've got sleep as restorative in general from a physical sense meaning it allows time for cells to recover it allows time uh, there's arguments about free radicals that uh, this is partially a time that your body can cleanse a little bit uh, because it's less devoted to some of the other processes that are going on and the last one you kind of mentioned when you were talking about sleepwalking which is maybe it's about simulation Um, there is some argument that sleep is about in conjunction with that memory consolidation part that it's partially about simulating potential events in the world Mm -hmm. and potential responses Um, it may also play back to that memory consolidation one it may also be that um, was it there were uh, francis crick actually made the argument that sleep is about Uh, being able to eliminate the unnecessary associations that are oftentimes happening. So we all casually walk around the world and we make 
um, assumptions about how things are interrelated and we constantly form some kind of hypotheses about all of this. And part of what he argued sleep is about, and there's, there might be some evidence for this, um, part of what he argued is that sleep helps you to prune off these dendritic spines that are so parts of your neurons that are growing from new experiences. You might be able to prune some of the ones that are unnecessary to get rid of these false uh, kinds of relations that don't actually exist, but just because you're awake, you're seeing them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a, a relatively common, back to, to the the simulation piece, it's a relatively common explanation for dreams is that ultimately yeah. they're, they, they serve the purpose that uh, of helping you act out some things and like figure out how to problem solve uh, in some of those situations. And it's... Um, you know, usually if you have self-report of dreams, and that happens in multiple ways. So it's either self-report after an entire night's sleep and you're trying to walk through these pieces or self-report after a week of sleep diarying and walking through, oh, here's what I put in my sleep journal. Or it's also um, waking someone up in the middle of their dreams when you see that they're starting to hit a REM cycle and then uh, asking them, what were you just dreaming about? In all of those cases, uh, it turns out the majority of our dreams we self-report as having negative content. So that's hmm. it's, it's usually comes in at a, uh, between two-thirds and three-quarters of our dream content has a negative connotation to it. Hmm. And that's an interesting piece because it is kind of simulation in a way, which is let's play out the worst consequences and then maybe things get better in everyday life when the worst consequences don't happen. Right. Interesting. Yeah, well, and that is consistent too with uh, like research on nightmares um, that finds that uh, groups that his evolutionarily would have been most vulnerable, like children, are more likely to have nightmares. Yeah. Than, uh, and yeah. so that, that speaks to the idea that there's like this problem-solving element there. That And that's it's hard because uh, we've moved so much away from dream interpretation whatsoever. Yes. Like that's, <laughs> as psychologists, that's, that's a no-no for us. But mm-hmm. it's an interesting piece, which is there seem to be some consistencies. So one of the things that does seem to go in uh, has a lot to do with the topic we haven't covered as much, which is stress. So if you have excessive stress going on in your everyday life, the content of your dreams will likely take on quite a negative characteristic. And this also happens when you're talking about um, uh, clinical psychopathologies as well. So this is something that individuals that suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or uh, depression, oftentimes what you see is the con- the self-reported content of dreams has uh, more of a negative quality to it. And it's thought that that might be through a mechanism of stress regulation happening as you're going into sleep, which is preventing parts of sleep, but also influencing the physiological arousal that you're having during sleep itself. Well, that's one of the things, as you've been talking about it, one of the things that's really interesting to me, I mean, sleep disturbances. I mean, there is a whole category in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual man, ugh, Manual of Mental Disorders, on sleep disorders, right? Yeah. So there's a whole category there. But in addition to that, sleep problems are a symptom of many, many, many conditions. Pretty much all the anxiety disorders, yep. pretty much all of the mood disorders see some sort of disturbance in sleep. Uh, as being relevant, yep. you know, and so it's most clearly. I mean, it's certainly linked to that stress piece and uh, and, and the anxiety piece. What? So, what are the bad things that can happen? I, I do want. We're going to end with some tips. I've got some some suggestions. We'll have some hopefully happy things. We'll, right. we'll see here. But what are some? 
what are the consequences? I mean, memory must be one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So memory must suffer, and it sounds like there's a cognitive decline, but what are some of the other consequences of not getting enough sleep? So there's three to four main symptoms that seem to always come up. Um, the first is reaction time and basic attentiveness in the here and now, which is if I'm sleep deprived for more than about a 24 hour period, which is all that the average human can handle, uh, human adult can handle, um, more than 24 hours starts to hit where my reaction times decrease significantly. Um, I'm, I have a harder time paying attention in the here and now to, uh, to lecture to in a given meeting or anything like that. Um, and you see precipitous drops off, drop-offs in your uh, self-control abilities right around that same point. So your ability to know, hey, I shouldn't, uh, oftentimes dieting is part of the issue. So if you're uh, trying to diet or you're trying to make sure you don't eat that donut and you have a 24-hour sleep deprivation, your ability to control yourself from, even though you know you shouldn't eat the donut, your ability to stop yourself from eating it becomes significantly decreased uh, because it seems like something about that extra effort that's going into trying to keep you awake, trying to keep you alert, seems to be um, deadened by not having the sleep. That also then influences working memory and uh, so aspects of keeping multiple things in the mind at once, trying to organize, trying to plan, that's the next set of thing, of skills that seem to be hit. And by not having those first two, it then yields the long-term memory issues because, yeah, it happens through consolidation. But if you don't even keep them in your mind for long enough to encode them, you're not going to remember them in long term. So it has huge effects on memory. The other one that it has big effects on is emotion processing. And part of it is thought to be through a regulatory aspect. So that same thing that's keeping me from eating the donut after I'm, I'm up for 24 hours also has uh, greater effects in stopping me from being irritable, being grouchy, so to speak, with uh, a partner if they do something that annoys you. So stopping yourself from having an outburst when at, at an unnecessary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the main effects across four different domains. So are, uh, the studies have the studies been done to basically deprive people of sleep and then do fMRIs or EEGs to see where they're, where we might be seeing less activity? So studies have been done to look at the EEG side of it. And oftentimes, so they look at two different things. Uh, You don't necessarily see less activity. You do see much uh, greater density of alpha waves in individuals who are in waking cycles, meaning they're getting drowsy, they're very bored, et cetera, uh, during task. Where you see the biggest issue is actually in uh, people start to have micro sleeps when they're truly missing sleep. And micro sleeps mean for a second or thereabouts, you actually fall momentarily asleep. This is where you start to have issues in driving because you have pseudo narcoleptic tendencies at that point where it's just knock out and then wake back up without necessarily realizing it. So these micro sleeps are one of the first signals of severe sleep depression or uh, deprivation. But the other thing that's noticed is as you start to have these, um, you start to activate less areas of the prefrontal cortex. So there are a couple of studies from the early 2000s that sleep-deprived individuals for not full sleep deprivation, but more sleep deprivation for about a week. And as they started to do cognitive tasks, they started to see less abilities uh, to recruit areas of the prefrontal cortex, which are all those ones involved in attention and executive function and regulation that, that I was mentioning earlier. Um, yeah, that's the gist of what happens in the brain there. Okay, very nice. So um, 
I've been seeing a lot on, and this, is, of course, comes back to that memory piece, but a lot about uh, Alzheimer's as linked to sleep deprivation. And so as we were talking about it, some of it seemed like it was like working memory, you yeah. know, memory, yeah. but so, it, but it's also long-term memory, it, it would appear. So this is the tricky part, because when we're getting towards something like Alzheimer's, uh, it's, there's a myriad of aspects that could lead towards it, and there's a lot of different groups that are working towards potential explanations for it. One of them is based off of a general health kind of aspect, which is if you can increase uh, generalized health and the flushing from uh, basically your blood's ability to get rid of some of the plaques that are the standard aspects, the amyloid beta plaques that build up uh, in, in the brain, which we all have amyloid beta from cognitive thoughts, but it's less of an ability to flush those. That flushing type tendency oftentimes happens during sleep. And so the argument, at least in some mouse models that have come out recently, which is what okay. you're talking about, I think, with the Alzheimer's and, uh, and sleep links is that in mouse models, if they can get them to sleep, they can flush some of the equivalents of these plaque buildups slightly better and maybe reduce Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's symptomatology. Gotcha. Um, um, so it's, there might be a link. My gut is saying it's probably through more holistic health outcomes that happen from uh, sleep rather than a direct one-to-one -one link of it. Gotcha. All right, so is there, we should get to some tips, but is there anything else we should get to before we get to those tips? Well, one of the fascinating pieces is that if you keep missing out on REM sleep, uh, you have this REM makeup kind of effect that happens, which is if you've had about four days of not getting enough REM sleep, your body actually tries to adjust to it and drops you almost immediately into rapid eye movement sleep when you when you lay down. Uh, and that's its attempt to try to get back this really rejuvenatory aspect of sleep. So it looks like uh, from everything that we can see from the body's protective aspects towards REM sleep, its attempts to get you back there, that might be the most important piece. And just as a reminder, that usually isn't the majority of your sleep until about hours five to eight of actually sleeping. What if I'm super efficient and I just want to kick through those first couple hours in like an hour? Can I get to REM sleep faster? I'm going to say no, but uh, <laughs> maybe okay. you're special. Okay. We'll, we'll go with your special. I'm, I'm disappointed to hear that. Oh, my so, bad. Yeah. All right, so let's talk tips. So um, this is actually from a talk I do in, in my abnormal psych class, because I would argue one of the things that's really interesting uh, about sleep is how we know it's a problem, yet uh, or we know it can be a problem. We know it's linked to a whole bunch of different mental health problems. However, we very rarely, as clinicians, kind of prescribe addressing that. You know, like yeah. very rarely yeah. do we do did I, or were, was I trained ever to say, you know what, like this is one of the first things we're going to try and fix is sleep. So um, I like to spend some time, uh, and this very, I was trained a while ago. This may have changed since then. Um, <laughs> but uh, I want to spend some time just running through some of the tips that we know is associated uh, with, with good sleep. These come from Mayo Clinic's website. It's an article called Six Steps to Better Sleep. But they're basically the same things that you see anywhere and everywhere. And number one, is to stick to a sleep schedule. Do you stick to a sleep schedule, Jason? I do stick to a sleep, but part of it's because I have a 19-month-old daughter at home who <laughs> sticks to a sleep schedule. So gotcha. I know if I'm not sleeping at one yep. point, 5 a.m. is coming early. Yeah, and I think that's a really, I mean, that is actually really important. Like, I have found for myself personally that I fall asleep much, much 
more easily now than I did when I was younger. And part of that is that I'm going to bed at approximately the same time yeah. every night. And so there's something about my body being prepared for Well, and that's, that's jumping back into those cycles that we were talking right. about, which is your sleep-wake arousal cycle. One of the worst things you can do, uh, theoretically, is on the weekends do the, okay, I'm going to sleep until yes. noon and stay yeah. up until 2 or 3 in the morning. You're actually not supposed to have a lot of deviation from your week – day to your weekend yep. schedule. Otherwise, it really does mess with your sleep cycle. Well, it's funny when I talk to students about the, when I when I give this talk in class, and, and um, it's funny how students really sort of balk at this one in particular, right? Because yep. so much of their life doesn't work this way, whether it's work schedules that tend to differ uh, over the course of the week, or, or as you said, you know, classes that are early on weekdays, but then they've got free time on weekends, and so they sleep in later. That this is this is the one that they really, I think, struggle with the most. Yeah, and that's I think that's part of what comes to. I'm guessing at some point we'll get to reduction of stress, but part of the stress part that happens here is that is when you have less control over your own schedule, you have less control over what's uh, denoting your sleep times, and that. That has its own consequences, too. Yeah. Uh, step uh, number two, pay attention to what you eat and drink. So you shouldn't go to bed hungry, but you also shouldn't go to bed stuffed. Um, that Paying attention to that. Also avoiding things like nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, things like that. As I sip my coffee while he's saying this. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, I do think that's one of those sort of myths. People, I hear people talk about, like, having a drink before bed because it'll help them sleep. But no, it... it likely messes with your sleep cycle. Yeah, this is, so substances in general, and this actually includes things like Ambien, so sleep aids that are sometimes mm -hmm. prescribed, don't have the immediate effect that we, that we think they do. So oftentimes you're talking about getting to sleep. I think the average for Ambien is like 15 minutes faster than you naturally would have. Mm -hmm. And the extended amount of sleep is minimal, but the secondary side effects can be huge, including having sleepwalking aspects or different things like this. And so it's messing with other parts of sleep in order to mm -hmm. get you there. Is Ambien the one that people were eating all sorts of weird stuff? Yeah, yeah that's, the, that, that's the like, Ambien. <laughs> like buttered cigarettes was the one that I had heard. Like, uh, yeah, somebody ate like a buttered cigarette sandwich when they were on. That Ambien. one I, I haven't heard about, but the, really the Ambien eating at night without yeah. realizing it is a big thing. And it, so it's eating lots of calories in the middle of the night without yeah. realizing it, but then also eating weird stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So step three or number three is create a restful environment. So uh, a room that's ideal for sleeping, they say, means cool, dark, and quiet. You mentioned before exposure to light uh, has that resetting effect. Um, so trying to avoid that, but also prolonged use of light-emitting screens just before bedtime. I think this is another place where, where um, people tend to go wrong, right? There. Uh, this is one that I, I mean, I definitely struggle with. I'm sure most people can resonate with the, the idea of like, do you have your cell phone next to you on the nightstand or uh, mm -hmm. near your bed? If so, you're probably likely to check it quite constantly and just the brightness of the light, even with any of the screens that are supposed to reduce the blue light exposure that you have, they don't actually work well enough that they can uh, get rid of the Zeitgeber effect that's happening and, and resetting your circadian clock. 
The other piece that's important there that you said is temperature. So one of the weird things about that circadian cycle I was talking about is that oftentimes the warmest that you are um, throughout the day is happening right around the time that you're starting to fall asleep. So you have a really warm cycle, which is part of the reason why anecdotally a lot of people go, oh, I'm just so hot. I'm so hot right now, like I need to cool down as you're getting ready. Then in the middle of the night you wake up freezing. It's because you're heading towards the other side of your internal regulatory temperature cycle. Very good. So number four is to limit daytime naps. This is another one students aren't crazy about. Um, but long daytime naps interfere with nighttime sleep. Um, choose to, if you choose to nap, limit yourself to up to 30 minutes and avoid doing so late in the day. Yeah, this one is, so this one's been debated for quite some time. So on, on the good side for students, I will say, there's some evidence if you're REM deprived, uh, a 30 minute or so nap can help. It can, it can help with the restorative effects. But that's what it's limited to, which is if you're already suffering from pretty decent sleep deprivation, a nap isn't the worst thing. For the normal adult that isn't suffering, well, no, normal adult is probably suffering from sleep (laughs) deprivation. But uh, for an individual that's not having sleep deprivation, it turns out that messes with your sleep cycle so much to have this nap, especially if it's later in the day, that it actually yields uh, a much harder time to have the standard melatonin release and the standard kind of sleep gate or sleep window that's talked about where it's the optimal time where your body's ready to go to sleep. Have you come across the the coffee nap literature? Is this a thing that you've heard of at all? No, I haven't. So it's also called, I kid you not, a nappuccino, which is to drink coffee and then take your nap because it takes about 20 minutes for the coffee for the caffeine to get into your system and so when you wake up from that nap feeling refreshed and ready to go um this is brought up in uh that book when that i mentioned before that that there's uh, according to that book some research supporting this idea that like it it has this restorative restore yes restoring effect jeez i you know i don't know that one that is interesting yeah well Give it a go. You're yeah, drinking yeah, coffee yeah. right I now. Go coffee, take a nap. Although I've been <laughs> sipping it for the last oh. while, so I'm not sure that this is going to work effectively. Yeah. All uh, right. Number five, include physical activity in your daily routine. So regular physical activity is good. Avoid being active too close to bedtime. So spending time outside every day might be helpful too. Any additional? Yes. Yes, no, you agree. no I, I agree. I Again, I think that one might be a little more indirect, which is I think that one is about overall health is going to help with sleep tendencies. Gotcha. So obesity is related to sleep issues mm-hmm. as are other types of physical health um, mm-hmm. aspects. And so I think uh, the, the better physical health we're in, usually the better our sleep is. When I'm going to mention, so I, this is anecdotal, I went through a period where I was running a lot, and then I stopped for a little while, and I did notice when I stopped that one of the first things to go was, uh, was that I was having a hard time sleeping, yeah. and that yeah. that, that like, took, a, took a toll until I started again. Um, all right, number six is, you mentioned this earlier, managing worries, trying to resolve your worries and concerns before bedtime, jot down what's on your mind, and then set it aside for tomorrow as though it's that easy. That's exactly it. Easier said than done. But just about every study of sleep quality and trying to increase this has to do with some type of stress management because uh, it has the cyclical effect, which is stressors lead to less good sleep. And then as your sleep quality 
quality starts to get worse, then stress management seems to get worse as well. And so it just keeps cascading downwards to where uh, these worries become amplified that much more because you can't regulate them as well when you haven't been sleeping and vice versa. So it's this, it's this tricky thing where um, that's where all of the the enterprises that have talked about uh, breathing exercises to try to get you to reduce an anxiety before sleep mm-hmm. or some of those instead of or the old school counting sheep kind of aspect is supposed to be about a very um, basic and repetitive process that leads you to not have all of these more ruminative thoughts. Yeah, and I, I mean, the, the, it feels like, especially in the era of social media, there are those sort of tips floating around all the time, but they all really come back down to the same thing, right? It's yeah. like deep breathing, counting, yep. uh, try and ignore those worries. Many of the things that uh, would be the, the first things if you're starting to get anxious in everyday life, these would be the first kinds of things too, is breathing type exercises. Very nice. So when we come back, Jason's going to tell us about the cutest study I've ever heard of in a segment we like to call What's Good. All right, psychology nerds, it's me, Ryan Martin, host of Psychology and Stuff and All the Rage, and I'm here to tell you about something really cool we have coming up in the UW-Green Bay Psychology Department. Next month, March 25th through the 29th, we'll be running our first ever Psych Week. There's going to be original, in-person, and online content all week long. We'll have four brand new episodes of the podcast that week, new video content, the Psy Talks, a volunteer night, and an open house, and much, much more. You can learn all about it at the Psych Week website, uwgb.edu slash psychweek. All right, Jason, so tell us what's good. All right, what's good? So... As I said before, if you look up sleep and the news, it gets a little scary. There's a lot of things that suggest all the nightmares that happen when you don't get sleep. But there's a recent study in the last two weeks that just came out and talks about one potential solution. So one potential solution. They did this in mice and they did this in young adults. That's the cute part. The cute part is those mice. And and, uh, Dr. Martin is talking about rocking mice. So the key here is rocking and not the hard rock or music kind of rocking, but actually um, rocking back and forth like in a hammock. Uh, it turns out that one of the solutions that, that has been brought up is if you can have a little bit of physical movement during sleep, it might increase sleep quality and uh, expedite you getting to sleep in the first place. So this worked really well in young adults where if they were rocked ever so slightly during uh the start of sleep and during sleep itself, they got to sleep um, on the order of what an Ambien would be, so about that 15 minutes faster, and then slept uh, much longer than they would normally sleep and self-reported that their quality of sleep was better. The mice uh, had to be rocked, I believe they said something along the lines of three times as fast as the humans for it to work effectively, (laughs) so it's a little less cute. It's more like really rocking those mice back and forth, but... Uh, the mice also fell asleep faster and stayed asleep <laughs> longer. So uh, this is a new but potential solution, which is that a slight rocking uh, motion might actually help with sleep. So if I wanted to apply this to my own life, what is the... I mean, you get a mouse, you put it in your <laughs> yeah. hands, and you just shake okay. that thing back that and is, forth. That is helpful. That's actually not the part I meant. Oh, my bad. But, All right. uh, how do I... 
How do I embrace the rocking strategy? Like, do I have to ask my wife to just stay up and <laughs> sure. shake been, the bed for I've me? I've also been trying to figure out the uh, <laughs> practical implications of this, including ways that I could rock. And I'm, I'm not sure outside of a hammock yeah. how to do that. Okay. Well, I did mention that there are 14 to 15 people watching me sleep at yeah, night. Yeah, maybe, maybe at one least of them one of those 14 it. to 15 can rock you. Outstanding. So that is going to do it for this episode. Special thanks to Jason once again for donating his time to the show. Jason, do you have anything to add? Uh, Nothing to add, but thanks again for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for being on. So where can people learn more about the lab? What's the strategy for that? Right now, you can go to the UWGB psychology pages, and we have some presence there. We're trying to get a website up and running within the next couple of months, so hopefully you'll be able to go that way. We're making it. I'm going to plug the tour, the tour that we're creating. The lab tour as well, yeah. We're doing a virtual lab tour that uh, you'll be able to come check that out. So that'll be – it'll go live during Psych Week, actually. So very cool. So – Uh, If you want to learn more about sleep, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter by searching Psychology and Stuff. Uh, Go there for additional information about Psychology and Stuff, ask questions, or even suggest an episode. I also want to thank our producer, Kate Farley, and our new intern, the Phoenix Studios intern, Preston Fisher. I want to thank our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlease, and our fabulous intern, Shayla Warren. Make sure to join uh, us for Psych Week by visiting uwgb.edu slash psychweek. Until then, keep being amazing. 